Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Somebody, I've only got a few of these, but somebody pass these out. Tom, would you hand these out to everybody? Couples get one. Oh, cool. (laughs) An oh, cool from the crowd. This is a drawing that I will place on my blog, pastorjimmick.com. The next couple of chapters of Ezekiel, chapter 40 and chapter 41, are descriptive of a temple that has never been built but as Ezekiel was describing it he was actually looking at it so his descriptions of it made sense but if you just read the description and don't have some form some representation of it to look at then all the language of the next few chapters can become just kind of mind-boggling because it's very hard to imagine it in your head and keep all of the dimensions correct and get some idea of where everything is positioned and what Ezekiel is describing. Now, the image that I handed out comes from the Logos Bible software. I left the copyright on it. When I post it on my blog site, the copyright will be with it. I did find a copy of it on the internet as well, so I know it's out there available on the internet, so I hope I'm not stepping on anybody's copyright by distributing it, but now that I've said it out loud, that it belongs to Logo Software, uh, hopefully they will be good and not sue me for it, so, because I got nothing, so, you know, sue away, but I, I got nothing. As you can see, this is a really large temple. You will notice at the bottom of the drawing, there's a little sketch of an average football field. And an average football field is dwarfed by the size of this temple. I looked at other pictures, other representations of the temple compared to Solomon's temple. This is much, much larger than Solomon's temple which means it's also much larger than Herod's temple. Now, Solomon's temple is referred to as the first temple, and we talk about the first temple period. We talk about the second temple period of history in biblical Middle Eastern history. That's the time of Herod's temple, ending about 70 AD. This is referred to as the third temple because this is the third one in the Old Testament that's described except that the first and second you can actually find in history. This temple you cannot find anywhere in history. It hasn't been built. It hasn't been developed. And yet Ezekiel sees it and measures it and is told all about it in very exacting detail. Hearkening all the way back to how God met with Moses on Mount Sinai and told Moses how to build the tabernacle in the wilderness. 
And God was very specific about the dimensions and about the curtains and about the rings and about all the furnishings and about the clothing that the priests were going to wear. God was very exacting about it. Well, the same thing occurs here. God is being very exacting about this temple and the services that are going to go on in this temple. I argue, and I really don't know how to argue any other way, I argue that we need to take all of this information literally. I don't know how you allegorize the next several chapters of Ezekiel. Because there's just no way in this much detail, detail that allows you to create a drawing like you have in front of you, the detail is so specific and so correct that you can draw something like that. I looked at several different artist representations and mock-ups of what this temple will look like. They all look the same because the description is that exact, that if you just follow what it actually says, you end up with what you've got in front of you. And so with all that detail and with all that information and with God's exacting specificity, I don't know how you justify allegorizing it in order to come up with some kind of this is the church or this is spiritual Israel or this it has to be taken for what it is now where it appears in the book of Ezekiel the last couple of weeks we've been reading about the restoration of national Israel and how God is going to place them back in their land after he has raised them up out of the dirt how he's going to bring the whole house of Israel and Judah together like one stick in his hand and then the very end of chapter 39 is about Israel being restored and then chapter 40 again remembering that Ezekiel did not write these numbers We think of chapter 40 as a new section, even though it's the beginning of yet another vision that Ezekiel had, it's still all part and parcel of the writings of Ezekiel. So the very next thing he writes after we've seen this restoration of Israel language is the restoration of the temple that will be in the center of Israel, in the center of Jerusalem in the center of the land that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob continually. So when you look at the whole of the Old Testament, everything from the promises to Abraham through all the predictions of God scattering Israel but then promising to regather them, you have to see this temple in that context. It is part and parcel of God's demonstration. It's part of his proof that he is going to restore Israel. Now, earlier in Ezekiel, we saw the rather frightening image of God leaving the temple that was in Jerusalem. He abandoned the temple that had been built by Solomon, and then he brought the invading armies in. Nebuchadnezzar and his armies invaded Jerusalem and the temple and destroyed the temple. And so knowing that that temple was destroyed and that God intended to destroy it, God's spirit abandoned that building. But as we read about this building, after a couple of chapters, I think in chapter 43, we're going to see God taking up residence in that building. So even though he abandoned Solomon's temple, and even though there's no demonstration that he ever occupied Herod's temple... Remember that Herod's temple did not have the Ark of the Covenant in it. 
So even though they had a place called the Holy of Holies, they couldn't go in once a year and actually do the atoning work because they didn't have the Kaporeth and they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. And so ever since God abandoned Solomon's temple, there hasn't been a restoration of genuine God-designed worship in Israel. And yet, in describing this temple, he's going to describe the restoration of his own worship. And he's going to describe it in terms that are very much like the original terms. This is how you approach me. You have to have a priesthood. You have to have Levites. You have to have a sacrifice. You have to have animals. You have to come in and sacrifice this way on these days, and you have to accomplish it with this incense, and you do these practices. Well, he's going to say all that again. So what is God doing when you look at the big picture? The big picture is God is restoring not only national Israel, but he is restoring the worship of national Israel to himself the way he originally designed it, which they never accomplished correctly. Now he's going to make sure that it is accomplished correctly. He said he's going to take out their stony heart. He's going to give them a heart of flesh. He's going to put his spirit in them. They're going, of course, to have the new covenant. And in that new covenant, they are going to finally understand the law in their hearts instead of externally on tablets of stone. They are finally going to know who God is and worship God correctly. Now, knowing all of that, can part of that return to worship be a return to worship that includes animal sacrifice? That is the sticking point for most people. They get into Ezekiel 41, and the idea of animal sacrifice is introduced. And so people who say, well, you know, Christ was the end of all the sacrifices. I've read the book of Hebrews. There's no more sacrifice for sin. There's no more goats or bulls. There's no more animals. Those can't take away sin. Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, all of which I agree with. They then argue, well, then how can there be a return to animal sacrifice? What does that possibly accomplish? Rather than answer that question emotionally, Rather than answer that question based on my own philosophical ideas, I have to look at the whole of the Bible. And in the Bible, particularly in the book of Acts, we are introduced to Jews in Jerusalem who, though they believe in Christ, are still, quote unquote, are still zealous for the law. And as a consequence, they are still practicing animal sacrifice. So when Paul comes to Jerusalem, James says, it's said about you that you tell people everywhere to abandon Moses. And when the people hear that you've come, they're going to want to know what the answer to this is. And then James gives him the advice, shave your head, take a vow, go into the temple, and then sacrifice. Now, this is Paul who is adamant among the Gentiles that they should not practice Jewish practices. The Gentiles should not submit to the law or to circumcision. But when he is among the Jews, and we talked about this when we were talking about the book of James, when he is among the Jews, he makes a distinction. He makes a difference. And he recognizes that those that are believers in Christ, but also zealous for the law, constitute a group of Jews who are not doing anything 
that he would argue about because he recognizes that they have that history. They have that covenant. They're being brought into the new covenant. They're making the transition from the old to the new. But he sees animal sacrifice as part of their religion in Jerusalem, in the temple, believers, and he recognizes those sacrifices apparently as a way of pointing backwards at what Christ has done. In the very same way that just this past Sunday, we had communion, and as often as we eat this bread or drink this wine, Paul says, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. So it's emblematic of the Lord's death. That's what the new covenant church is given to do in order to keep remembering. Christ said he wasn't going to participate in the wine or in the bread until he took it new with them in the kingdom. Okay, well, when Christ returns then and gathers his church and establishes Israel and the kingdom, well, then there's not going to be any necessity for the church to continue communion. Is that fair to say? Because he's come. They're looking forward to his coming. They're remembering his death, and they're looking forward to the coming. But when he comes, that is satisfied. Okay, that being the case, he's now going to turn his attention to Israel. Can he require Israel to go to their original form of worship that includes animal sacrifice, that according to the New Testament includes the law written on their hearts? And can he then require them to worship him appropriately according to everything he originally prescribed for them which they never correctly did. Now they're going to correctly do it. And can they do all that looking back to his sacrifice as a memorial to the sacrifice of him? Can they do it as a form of worship to their king? Well, the answer is yes. So not only do I have no problem with the animal sacrifice in Ezekiel 41 and continuing, I have no problem with it because Paul, after Jesus came and died, resurrected, ascended into heaven, Paul went to Jerusalem, sacrificed an animal. Why? Because he was among the Jews in Jerusalem. And among the Jews in Jerusalem, that sacrificial system, looking toward Christ, didn't offend Paul's thinking or theology. So then... My point is, I said all that to say, so then the animal sacrifices prescribed for the temple to come should not offend our theology or thinking, nor should we start thinking that we are going to hold God to a higher standard than God himself has already laid out. God said he's going to return Israel to proper worship in a temple with the Levites and animal sacrifice. It's only humans that come along later and go, no, he can't do that. No, 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 no. Because my theology says, and then we try to hold God accountable for saying exactly what he says. As if we know better than God how he's going to deal with Israel. Now, of course, if you start with the a priori position that God's done with Israel, if you start with the idea that the church is Israel, 
If you start with the idea that spiritual Israel is now all the elect believers of all time, so that national genetic Israel has been erased in God's economy, then yes, you have a problem with Ezekiel 41. You have a big problem. And so you've got to get rid of it. But if you just allow the Bible to say what it says, and if you see the progression of what God has revealed through the prophets in the Old Testament, then he has chosen them as a people group. He has given them a land in perpetuity that he has promised them forever. He has given them very specific instruction about how to worship him and who can worship him and who can be a priest. And who can be a Levite? He's given them very specific instruction, including their Sabbaths and including their years of Jubilee, including their feast days. And they broke all that. And so then God punished them. Then God drove them out of the land that he promised them in perpetuity. But every single time that we have read God talking about the fact that he has taken them out of their land... Every single time there's the promise of restoration. The prophets speak, you've heard me say this a thousand times, the prophets speak with one voice. They all say the exact same thing. Yes, God has punished Israel. Yes, God has driven them out of their land. But what did we read the last two weeks? God said, yeah, they are sinful. And yes, they have rebelled. And yes, they have chased their foreign gods. Therefore, what I'm going to do for them is forgive their sin. And give them a new heart. And put my spirit in them. And I'm going to bring them back to their land. And I'm going to reestablish them. They're going to have one king over them. I'm going to restore the throne of David. Because he made an everlasting unconditional covenant with the house of David. That it was always going to be a descendant of David's that was going to sit on the throne from Jerusalem. Ruling over the collective 12 tribes of Israel. So God is doing all that. Now, once he's done all that, once he's collected them all back into the land, isn't he also going to say to them? Uh, that's a bad rhetorical question because the answer is obvious. He is going to also say to them, remember how you didn't worship me correctly? Remember how you, how you negated my feast days? Remember how you profaned my Sabbaths? Remember how you profaned my name by being among the Gentiles? Remember how you did all that and worshipped other gods and burnt incense to other gods and sacrificed your children to other gods? Remember how you did all that? That was my worship, and I'm a jealous God, and I'm going to see to it that now you return that worship the way it should be back to me. Now, when you look at it from that standpoint... Does anybody have a problem with animal sacrifice in the temple that is going to be built someday in Jerusalem? That is going to be the restoration of Israel? I don't have that problem. I don't have a problem with it at all. Well, you can go all over the internet and look at people just complaining about, well, that can't be. Well, that can't be. Except that none of them have ever said, and man, I read the articles, I read the arguments, none of them have ever said convincingly why that can't be. Because in context, not only does God say it's going to be, but it also makes sense that it would be. Well, it'll be for God's pleasure. He's going to show them what he had in mind when they went through and didn't do it. Now they're going to do it his way. That's exactly it. 
and now they're going to do it his way. And let me add one more wrinkle. We believe in an absolutely sovereign God. Most Christian churches say that they believe that God is sovereign, and then they just kind of limit what areas they let him be sovereign in. But in sovereign grace churches, we would say that God is all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants to do. He can save whoever he wants to save. It's up to him what he's going to do. Except in so many sovereign grace churches that are covenantal and amillennial, who believe that the church is in some form Israel, they say completely opposite things. They say God is sovereign so he can do whatever he wants, but he can't do this. He can't do Ezekiel 41. Because my theology won't allow him to. Because my system won't allow him to. I keep arguing, if your system runs afoul of what the Bible actually says, it's not the Bible that's wrong, it's your system that's wrong. Ditch the system and go back to what the Bible actually says. And the Bible actually says that God's going to restore Israel nationally, genetically, bring them back to Jerusalem, and they're finally going to worship him the way he had always expected to be worshipped. So, have I made a convincing case yet? Yes. Because I can do this for more hours. (laughs) I can keep arguing for hours and hours that the Bible says this. And we're going to read it, and the Bible's going to say it. And when the Bible says it, you're going to have to decide in your head, do I believe this or do I need to somehow negate this? And if something in your conscience, something in your system, something in your background makes you think you have to negate God's word, then I would beg you to abandon that system. Abandon that kind of thinking. Any time that you feel you have to negate what the word says, the same way that we would argue, being thoroughgoing, Calvinistic type sovereign grace people, when we read um, Arminian preaching, we think immediately, well, you're only saying that because you're starting with an Arminian concept of free will. That's why you ended up where you are. That's why you're negating the language of predestination and election. You're avoiding that and negating it, even though the Bible says it, because you can't handle it. Okay, I'm arguing that we be the exact same way when it comes to Ezekiel 41. Exactly. Okay, God said it. God's sovereign. God can do whatever he wants to do. He's told us what he's going to do. He is spelling it out in magnificent detail for us. And if any part of you starts thinking, well, no, it can't be that way then the problem is not the Bible, the problem is you. Change your thinking to align yourself with what the Bible says. There, I've remade my case. Have I made my case enough times now? Yes. Because I can do this all night. Evidently. Evidently. (laughs) I can continue down this line of thinking. I I brought meatballs. (laughs) You can sit here and eat all night while I argue this case. All right, so we're going to start in Ezekiel 40. That's why I gave you the the image to start with, so that as we're reading, you can kind of understand what's being described. Now, I'm going to read just a little piece of the Bible Knowledge Commentary because it does a real good job of summarizing what I'm about to read 
And I think the summary and the picture will help you plug in the details because if I started by just reading the details and you had nowhere to plug them in, it would just become uh, very, very hard for you to imagine in your head. And at some point, you'd doze off and start balancing your checkbook in your head and deciding what you're going to wear tomorrow for work. Starting in Ezekiel 40, the first four verses say that this happened in the 25th year of the exile at the beginning of the year on the 10th of the month in the 14th year of the fall of the city of Jerusalem. So that's really specific. That puts the date right around 573 B.C. Starting at the outer court, which at verse 5, we start reading about the outer court. There's an angelic being with Ezekiel, and he has a measuring rod that we're told is six cubits, and each of which was a cubit and a hand's breadth. So a common cubit was about 18 inches long, and a long cubit, which is probably the one being used by Ezekiel, was about 21 inches long. So the measuring rod then is about 10 and a half feet in length. The wall surrounding the temple was 10 and a half feet thick and 10 and a half feet high. Get some idea how thick the wall is? From verse 6 to verse 16, Ezekiel passes into the outer court through a gate that's facing east. This is one of the three gates that's leading to the outer court. You can see it there. Since it faced east, it was also probably the most important gate. He describes the gate in great detail with its steps and its threshold, with alcoves for the guards, with a portico facing the temple and palm trees, along with projecting walls. And then starting at verse 17, he enters the outer court. And Ezekiel sees a pavement all around the court with 30 rooms along the pavement. These rooms are evenly spaced and they are even numbers along the north and the east and the south walls of the temple. You can tell that from the drawing. And the use of these rooms isn't stated. They just exist. So they may be storage rooms or meeting rooms for the people when they come to celebrate the feasts. The distance from the inside of the lower gateway, which is the eastern gate, to the outside of the inner court, to the threshold of the gate leading to the inner court, is about 175 feet, or 100 cubits. And then starting at verse 20 until verse 27, Ezekiel is then led from the east gate of the outer court to the north gate and to the south gate, and the design and the dimension of both those gates are identical to those on the gate facing east. So let's read to verse 27. Reading right from the Bible, starting at verse 1 of Ezekiel 40, in the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the city was taken, on that same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me there. The there is a reference to the city. So he's taken to see Jerusalem. In the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel, and he set me on a very high mountain, and on it to the south there was a structure like a city. 
So he brought me there. And behold, there was a man whose appearance was like an appearance of bronze, with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and give attention to all that I am going to show you. For you have been brought here in order to show it to you. Declare this to the house of Israel. Declare all that you will see. I find it interesting that this angelic being begins by saying to Ezekiel, who has seen plenty of visions by now, he starts by saying, hear with your ear, see with your eyes. In other words, he requires an angelic being to tell him to understand what he's looking at. I think that means, had there not been an angel there to explain it to him and show it to him, that he couldn't have understood it. That being a human being, it takes the power of God to open your eyes, to open your ears, to give you the understanding, to comprehend what's being said. Which is why I continue to argue, and will again, because apparently I can. (laughs) I continue to argue that some people just don't get these last chapters of Ezekiel. They read it, but they just, they can't see it. They can't get it. But that's because God has to allow you, just like the whole rest of his word, he has to empower you to understand it. So it's not surprising to me that people argue against it or argue with it or redefine it. Even Ezekiel himself had to have an angelic being say to him specifically, because wouldn't you think, my point being, wouldn't you think after everything Ezekiel had been through, after all the visions, after all of the times that he had to lay on one side and then on the other, after having gone through the things he's gone through, wouldn't you think it would be sufficient? This is Ezekiel after all. Wouldn't it be sufficient to just take him and show it to him? And yet the angel had to say, son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears and understand, give attention to all that I'm going to show you. Now, of course, that harkens all the way forward to Jesus who talks about those people who have ears but don't hear, have eyes but don't see. Here Ezekiel is told, hear this, see this, understand this. And then tell it, declare it to the house of Israel. Why the house of Israel? Because they're the people who are the direct recipients of everything we're about to read. This isn't about us. This isn't about the church. This is about Israel. It's educational for us. It shows us the faithfulness of God. It shows us that God never turns from his word and that he's made promises to national Israel and that he made unconditional promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even though Israel has been nonstop rebellious and evil, God is still going to do all this wonderful stuff for them because he's a faithful God who doesn't change. And that gives us a tremendous amount of confidence. So we ought to read all this stuff about Israel and go, yes, amen, you go God, restore Israel, build a temple. If you want animal sacrifice, you do that. 
because it is all proof of God's absolute faithfulness to his people despite their rebellion. And that ought to give rebellious people like you and Gala a lot of confidence. See, I always call somebody out and you just happen to be here this week. So for the internet people, I, I just threw in a little Gala. <laughs> so hear with your ears son of man see with your eyes give attention to all that I'm going to show you for you have been brought here in order to show it to you declare to the house of Israel everything that you're going to see behold there was a wall on the outside of the temple all around and in the man's hand was a measuring rod of six cubits each of which was a cubit and a hand's breadth. So he measured the thickness of the wall. It was one rod, and the height was one rod. And he went to the gate which faced east. He went up to its steps and measured the threshold of the gate, one rod in width, and the other threshold was one rod in width. And the guard room was one rod long and one rod wide. And there were five cubits between the guard rooms and the threshold of the gate by the porch of the gate facing inward was one rod. Then he measured the porch of the gate facing inward one rod and he measured the porch of the gate eight cubits and its side pillars two cubits and the porch of the gate was facing inward. And the guard rooms of the gate toward the east numbered three on each side. And three of them had the same measurement. The side pillars also had the same measurement on each side. And he measured the width of the gateway, ten cubits, and the length of the gate, thirteen cubits. And there was a barrier wall, one cubit wide, in front of the guard rooms on each side. And the guard rooms were six cubits square on each side. And he measured the gate from the roof of the one guard room to the roof of the other, a width of 25 cubits from one door to the other door opposite. And he made the side pillars 60 cubits high. And the gate extended round about to the side pillar of the courtyard. And from the front of the entrance gate to the front of the inner porch of the gate was 50 cubits. And there were shuttered windows looking toward the guard rooms and toward their side pillars within the gate all around. And likewise for the porches. And there were windows all around inside. And on each side pillar there were palm tree ornaments. Then he brought me into the outer court. Okay, so that's his description of coming through the east gate. He's coming through the east gate into the temple. He's measuring the wall. He's seeing the guard posts. He's seeing the way the gate is constructed and the porch around it. Now, to the Jews reading this, they would remember the structure that Solomon had built at Jerusalem. And they would remember that there were gates. And they would remember that there were porches, porticos. They would remember the pillars. They would remember the guard gates. And so all he has to do is mention each of them and say what the dimensions are, because the dimensions are much larger than what Solomon built. And so because they have a ready frame of reference, what he's telling them fits their 
image of what the temple would look like. But we don't know that. We've never been to the temple in Jerusalem. We, we never went to Solomon's temple. We never looked at it from the inside and recognized the inner court and the outer court and the guard places and the storage rooms. and the, you know, We've never looked at the, the Holy of Holies from the outside. We, we don't understand all that. That's why I think the picture, the drawing, is helpful because at least then you can plug these dimensions into the larger scale. So it gives you a point of reference that you can work from. But you can see now why if I began the evening by just reading everything I just read to you, you'd be lost because you have no frame of reference. Starting at verse 17, he then went into the outer court. And behold, there were chambers and a pavement made for the court all around. Thirty chambers faced the pavement. And the pavement that is the lower pavement, was by the side of the gates, corresponding to the length of the gates. Then he measured the width from the front of the lower gate to the front of the exterior of the inner gate, a hundred cubits on the east and on the north. And as for the gate of the outer court, which faced the north, he measured its length and its width. And it had three guard rooms on each side, and its pillars and its porches had the same measurements as the first gate. Its length was 50 cubits, its width 25 cubits, and its windows and its porches and its palm tree ornaments had the same measurements as the gate that faced east. And it was reached by seven steps, and its porch was in front of them. And the inner gate had a gate opposite the gate on the north, as well as the gate on the east, and he measured a hundred cubits from gate to gate. Then he led me toward the south, and behold, there was a gate toward the south. And he measured its side pillars and its porches according to those same measurements. And the gate and its porches had windows all around, like those other windows. The length was fifty cubits, and the width 25 cubits. And there were seven steps going up to it, and its porches were in front of them, and it had palm tree ornaments on its side pillars, one on each side. And the inner court had a gate toward the south, and he measured from gate to gate toward the south. It was 100 cubits. Okay, so that's verse 1 through 27. Starting at verse 28... The summation is, after measuring the outer court, the angel measures the inner court. So he went from the south gate of the outer court through the south gate of the inner court. And this gate had the same measurements as the others. The south gate, the east gate, the north gate, and the inner court were identical and were also the same as the three gates of the outer court, except that the porticos of the inner gates faced the outer court. The portico, or the vestibule, was reversed on these gates. Starting at verse 38, we're going to see, at the sides of the inner gate, there were tables set up for the slaughtering of the sacrifices. Four tables were on each side of the gate and four on the other, eight tables in all. And the sacrifices prepared on these tables would then be offered on the altar on the inner or in the inner court. 
So let's read that, because listen to the specificity of the language. Starting at verse 28, Then he brought me to the inner court by the south gate, and he measured the south gate according to those same measurements. Its guard rooms also, and its side pillars and its porches were according to those same measurements. And the gate and its porches had windows all around, and it was 50 cubits long, 25 cubits high. And there were porches all around, 25 cubits long and 5 cubits wide. And its porches were toward the outer court. And the palm tree ornaments were on the side pillars. And its stairway had 8 steps. And he brought me to the inner court toward the east. And he measured the gate according to those same measurements. Its guard rooms also. Its side pillars and its porches were according to those same measurements. And the gate and its porches had windows all around, and it was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits high. And its porches were toward the outer court. And palm tree ornaments were on the side pillars, one on each side, and its stairway had eight steps. Then he brought me to the north gate, and it measured according to the same measurements, with its guard rooms and its side pillars and its porches, and the gate had windows all around, and the length was 50 cubits, and the width 25 cubits. And its side pillars were toward the outer court, and the palm tree ornaments were on the side pillars on each side, and its stairway had eight steps, and a chamber with its doorway was by the side pillars of the gate where they rinse the burnt offerings. And in the porch of the gate were two tables on each side on which to slaughter the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, and the guilt offerings. And on the outer side, as one went up to the gateway toward the north, were two tables. And on the other side of the porch of the gate were two tables. Four tables were on each side next to the gate, eight tables on which to slaughter sacrifices. And for the burnt offering, there were four tables of hewn stone, a cubit and a half long, a cubit and a half wide, and one cubit high, on which they lay the instruments with which the burnt offerings and the sacrifice were slaughtered. And the double hooks, one hand's breadth in length, were installed in the house all around, and on the table was the flesh of the offering. And from the outside to the inner gate were chambers for the singers in the inner court, one of which was on the side of the north gate, with its front toward the south, and one was on the side of the east gate, facing toward the north. And he said to me, This is the chamber which faces toward the south, intended for the priests who keep charge of the temple. But the chamber which faces toward the north is for the priests who will keep charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok, who from the sons of Levi come near to the Lord to minister to him. Okay, again, just stop and think about the specificity again. Not only the specificity of the temple itself, the walls, the chambers, the windows, the palm decorations, the pillars, 
but then also the tables for the sacrifice, the slaughter of the animals, but then also the double hooks. It would be easy to overlook that, except that back in the book of Leviticus, when God laid out how to build the tabernacle in the wilderness and all its furnishings and the ark and the sacrifices, they had to make specific implements that included meat hooks. Meat hooks are used for animal sacrifices. And notice that not only were there tables for animal sacrifices, but there are double hooks. God is being real specific. He's talking about dead animals. He's not talking about any kind of a spiritualized, allegoricalized, if that's a word. If it's not, it needs to be. He's not describing anything except the return to animal sacrifice that he prescribed for Israel at the very beginning. When he took them out of Egypt and brought them to Sinai and explained to Moses how they were going to worship him, he included not only animal sacrifice, but how to sacrifice the animals and what kind of hooks to build in order to handle the carcasses. And he included it here because there's going to be carcasses. And then chambers for singers. Singers. He's going to have singing going on in his temple while there's animal sacrifices to himself. When you go back and you read the Psalms, look at how often David says that the Psalms he wrote were specifically for the music leaders or for the singers, for the directors of the music. There are some people who argue that the word selah, which is translated more or less think of that, might also be a musical notation, that this is where kind of a music break would be before you continue the recitation. God wanted singing in his temple. He wanted singing around him while sacrifices were being made to him. He wanted praise always toward him. So much so that he built in a chamber for the singers. If any of this sounds really familiar, I'm trying to draw connections. I'm trying to show you that he's not just making this up new out of whole cloth. He's returning Israel to the kind of worship he first prescribed for them. And all the details are the same, including Levites. But then there are particular Levites, the sons of Zadok, who are the sons of Levi, who will come near to the Lord and minister to him. There are some Levites who are in charge of the altar. But then there's some that take the sacrifice to the most holy place to sacrifice to God. The ones that are allowed to come near to God are very specific. God chose it. God chose them and it hasn't changed. It has to be the sons of Zadok that come forward to him. That also tells you that despite the amount of genetic intermixing there may have been for the last couple of thousand years, God knows who those people are. He knows what the genetic makeup is. He knows who's a member of that tribe and who isn't. And it has to be a Levite, the sons of Zadok, in order to go into the Holy of Holies and bring sacrifices into the presence of God and minister to him. That's real specific. That's all I'm saying. It's the same specific God we met back at Sinai. It's the same specific God who said to Adam and Eve, you can eat anything you want, not that. That's specific. 
God has always said, this is how you approach me. He has always laid out the parameters of how human beings should worship him and how they can approach him and who can approach him. He's always been specific. He's always done the electing. He has always done the choosing and the designating. And he has always said, this is how you get to me. Which is why it's so important that Jesus came on the planet and said, me, I'm the way. I'm the way you get to God. No man comes to the Father but by me. Once again, he's laying out the specifics. He's saying specifically that same God who specifically said that only the Levites could approach me and only the sons of Zadok can approach me in the Holy of Holies. That same very specific God said very specifically, the only way you get to God is through Christ. And here he is showing that same kind of specificity again when dealing with Israel. And notice what Israel he's dealing with. I want to be as clear as I can. He's not dealing with believing Israel. Because believing Israel becomes the ecclesia. They become the church. He's dealing with the people who Paul talks about in Romans 11, who he specifically says, all Israel will be saved. And then he describes what all Israel he's talking about. He says, as touching the gospel... They are enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. So God is being faithful to national Israel who were previously unbelieving Israel, but he's building a kingdom for those people because that's what he has always promised them. And they are going to be ruled by Christ He are going to be ruled by the throne of David and they are going to perform the levels, the kinds, the designations that God put in place at the very beginning of his relationship with them. This group is national, genetic, unbelieving Israel who God is going to remove their stony heart, give them a heart of flesh. He's going to put his spirit in them and he's going to nationally restore them so that he, as God, is worshipped the way he wants to be worshipped by the very people he designated to worship him. God wins. God always wins. God is going to do what God said he's going to do because if he had designated that people group to worship him in a specific way and they didn't do it and he gave up, that's like saying that God found something too hard for God. God said, well, I meant for these people to worship me this way, but they were too rebellious, so I washed my hands of them. I'm done with them. Forget it. No, God is going to accomplish absolutely everything he set out to accomplish with the very people he set out to accomplish it through. And that's what you see here. So verse 47 says, And he measured the court, a perfect square, a hundred cubits long and a hundred cubits wide. And the altar was in front of the temple. Then he brought me to the porch of the temple and measured each side of the porch. Five cubits on each side, and the width of the gate was three cubits on each side. The length of the porch was 20 cubits, and the width 11 cubits. 
and at the stairway by which it was ascending, there were columns belonging to each side pillars. There were columns belonging to the side pillars, one on each side. Starting at chapter 41, which is where we'll pick up next week, he's finally going to get to the inner temple. He's not going to be allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. Why? He's not one of the sons of Zadok. So even his vision, even though he's Ezekiel the prophet, God continues to be specific. He doesn't get to go into the Holy of Holies. So that's that chapter. As heavy and specific as it is, I hope that the pictures were a way of helping you visualize it. Are there any questions so far? I, I hesitate to ask. But can you see how specific God's being? He didn't take that temple to come and cram it into a chapter. It's going to take a whole bunch of chapters to describe this temple. Because God plans on this temple becoming a reality. And whatever God plans as a reality happens. Right? right. Yes, Sir Micah. Do any thoughts on why there would not be gate on the west side, all sides but not the west? I could make up an answer for you. I could spiritualize something. But Ezekiel is just describing what he's seeing. You will notice that the temple lays on an east-west axis. The tradition is that when Christ comes back, he's going to enter Jerusalem through the east gate. And so I think that's why the, the prominence is given to the east gate. And also as you walk in the east gate, if you keep walking straight... You go through a succession of ever-decreasing doorways that finally gets down to the doorway of the Holy of Holies. So it gets narrower and narrower as you get to where God is. And that's through the East Gate. But then the back of the temple is to the West. And so maybe that's why. Anything else? I think when you say Temple Mount, yeah, you're right. It's got to be significantly larger. And don't forget that the landscape of Jerusalem is going to be altered to a degree from the amount of fighting through the time of tribulation, time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again, that kind of stuff. There's going to be a tribulation temple of some kind built because the Antichrist is going to stand in the temple showing himself that he is God. But it's not going to be that one. And so Israel's attempt at building another temple is ultimately going to fail through Antichrist's incursion. So um, this is what looks to be the millennium temple. For the thousand years, this is where the worship's going to go on. That's what it appears to be. Make sense? Yes. Okay. Anything else? Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Gayla, say goodbye to yourself. Bye. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. 
We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.